0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist.
1: My closing thought would be to provide a quote from Carl Sagan, writing in 1994, the famous scientist who wrote the book Pale Blue Dot. Sagan says this, "'It might be a familiar progression, transpiring on many worlds. A planet, newly formed, placidly revolves around its star. Life slowly forms.' a kaleidoscopic procession of creatures evolves. Intelligence emerges, which at least up to a point confers enormous survival value, and then technology is invented. It dawns on them that there are such things as laws of nature, and that these laws can be revealed by experiment, and that knowledge of these laws can be made both to save and to take lives, both on unprecedented scales." Science, they recognize, grants immense powers. In a flash, they create world-altering contrivances. Some planetary civilizations see their way through, place limits on what may and what must not be done, and safely pass through the times of peril. Others, not so lucky or so prudent, perish.
0: Welcome back to the second season of the Law Bites podcast. A lot has happened since the podcast took a brief hiatus in early August. A national election was called. The CRTC released an important telecom decision that sparked outrage from incumbent carriers. And a test case on website blocking made its way to the federal court. But nothing was as important or difficult as the passing of my good friend and colleague Ian Kerr after months of battling complications from cancer. Ian can be heard in the opening of this podcast, bringing law, technology, and ethics to a broader audience on CBC's Ontario Today in 2014 as he recites a passage from Carl Sagan. As I wrote in a tribute to Ian, he was a singular talent whose impact not just on the field, but on everyone he worked with, taught, mentored, or lectured will be felt for decades to come. He was a founding member of the University of Ottawa's Centre for Law, Technology, and Society and joined the Faculty of Law in the year 2000. In 2001, he was named the Canada Research Chair in Ethics, Law, and Technology. Ian identified the need to examine the legal and ethical implications of technology years before those issues emerged as leading societal concerns. His towering career spanned a myriad of law and policy challenges including robots in the law, artificial intelligence, privacy, surveillance, algorithms, electronic contracting, human rights, and human enhancement. As always, he brought a unique, multidisciplinary perspective, drawing on his four-way appointment in law, medicine, philosophy, and information studies. Ian was an immensely gifted teacher, a world-class researcher, a devoted colleague, and a generous friend and mentor. In the classroom, he challenged students to think in new ways, and he worked to bring out the best in everyone. At the University of Ottawa, he was an exceptional builder, playing the lead role in creating the LLM in Law and Technology, the Cross-Border Techno-RICO course, and ID Trail, one of the first multi-million dollar, multidisciplinary research projects focused on online identity. In the policy realm, his work was quoted by the Supreme Court of Canada, by politicians in the House of Commons and the Senate, and in numerous government reports. His generosity, warmth, and good humor touched the lives of thousands of people. Whether national privacy commissioners or first-year law students, he made time for everyone, offering encouragement, insight, and a deeply held view that everyone had an opportunity and responsibility to help shape our collective digital future. For those that did not have the good fortune to know Ian, it's impossible to fully convey his impact in a post or podcast. If you're not familiar with his work, I'd urge you to read some of his exceptional scholarship on privacy, AI, and new technologies. In addition, Ian leaves behind videos of many of his public talks, where his knack for bringing together popular culture, philosophy, technology, and the law will be evident. The Faculty of Law plans to celebrate Ian in an event scheduled for Friday, September 27th at 11.30. There is also an Ian R. Kerr Memorial Fund that will support scholarships, fellowships, activities, and other initiatives honoring his legacy. Links to information on the event and fund, as well as some of the tributes to Ian, can be found on the show page for this episode. Now, this episode wasn't easy to create but I wanted to highlight his exceptional talent as a teacher and advocate. The episode features five clips that each call attention to different strengths. The Sagan opening highlights Ian's innate ability to bridge disciplines and reach a wide audience. The episode also features two House of Commons committee appearances, one demonstrating how Ian was so often prescient on key issues, and the other illustrating his deep commitment to gender equality. There is also an interview showcasing his advocacy skills, as well as a lecture at the University of Montreal on health and AI, which holds personal significance since we spent the day together along with past, and as it turned out, future colleagues. More on that talk in a moment. For now, let's start with his opening remarks before the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics in 2012. This study on privacy and social media shows how Ian was always ahead of the curve. In this instance, raising concerns about social media services years before Cambridge Analytica would emerge as a touchstone issue.
1: Almost exactly one year ago, I was sitting in a boardroom much like this one, only much, much fancier. The day-long meeting was at 1601 South California Avenue in Palo Alto, California. If the Addy isn't familiar to you, it's the Facebook campus. A guy called Mark Zuckerberg works there, and it is spectacular. Vibrant, pounding with energy, everybody jacked into headphones. I felt like a kid in a candy store. Because I was required to sign a non-disclosure agreement upon my arrival, I cannot tell you many of the interesting things that I learned at Facebook that day. Apparently, Zook's uh, Facebook tagline which reads, and I quote, I'm trying to make the world a more open place by helping people connect and share, end of quote, does not apply to Facebook's business operations. There is one thing, though, that I will disclose, however. I got sick to my stomach that day from eating way too many Sour Patch Kids. The roof of my mouth was practically torn to shreds. Imagine a very well-stocked candy store, Sugar Mountain or the Bulk Barn but in seemingly endless supply at every single coffee station throughout the entire Facebook campus. Now, in defense of my gluttony, let me just say that I was not the only one. What I witnessed that day was 25 of the world's most important privacy scholars and advocates stuffing their faces, lining their pockets, and filling their knapsacks with candy. Grown adults earning six-figure salaries. We weren't stealing. Excessive and free consumption was encouraged. We were simply reacting to the offer of ubiquitous, abundant, and highly addictive forms of fuel. Why have I wasted three of my precious ten minutes talking to Ethy about eating Sour Patch Kids at Facebook's campus? Because information is the new sugar. Big data, big sugar. Get candy, get candy, get candy. Just as health practitioners urge us to consume fewer refined sugars and to safeguard, um, through policies, the increasing unhealthy consumption habits of Canadians, I appear before you today as a privacy practitioner, urging you to safeguard Canadian citizens and global corporations from the complex and increasingly unmanageable desire to collect, use and disclose more and more personal information. Because big data is like big sugar. The more ubiquitous, abundant, pleasurable, efficient, and profitable it is, the more we want it. And sometimes the more we want it, the more blinded we are by its consequences. We stand at the precipice of what one might call the late-onset diabetes of the information age. And we should be doing much more to prevent it. You've already heard excellent submissions from two fantastic commissioners, Anne Kavukian and Elizabeth Denham, as well as my hugely talented University of Ottawa colleagues, Professors Skaza, Geist and Steves. They have overlapped on a number of crucial recommendations that must be followed by this committee. To recap four points quickly, first, you need to finish what you started. You're way behind on a number of necessary legislative reforms to PIPEDA. Studying social media may grab headlines, but Ethi should first first focus on the PIPEDA review. I learned as a kid, leave the drum solos till later. It's not as sexy, but the rudiments must come first. Point two, perhaps the most uh, important rudimentary aspect of this is that the privacy commissioner needs much greater powers, including the power to make orders, award damages, and issue penalties. These enforcement powers must have serious teeth. Point three of the overlap, also rudimentary, uh, mandatory notification requirements for certain kind of security breaches. The fourth and last of the basic points I'm reiterating from the previous discussions is the need to mandate far greater transparency. Not only about the collection of personal information, but about how it is being used and to whom it's being disclosed. We need this both at the front and the back end of social media transactions. To be clear, this is not just a point about tweaking privacy policies or making more understandable notice provisions. It is about legislating what I would call mandatory minimums, but here mandatory minimum standards for privacy transparency, requiring that they be embedded into technologies and in social techniques. We don't sell cars without speedometers or odometers or fuel or pressure gauges. Likewise, our social media should be required to have feedback mechanisms that allow us to look under the hood and to warn us when conditions are no longer safe. I have two further submissions of my own. The first concerns privacy's default settings. In his appearance before this committee, Professor Geis generously referred to my uh, work titled, The Devil is in the Defaults. In short, the architecture of every technology concludes a number of design choices. Now, some of those design choices create default positions. For example, a car's default position is Stop. When we enter a car and turn it on, the car is in park. For safety's sake, its design requires that we conscientiously put it into gear in order to go. Although, it'd be impossible, sorry, although it would be possible to design things the other way around, we recognize the danger of cars that default to go rather than stop, and we've regulated against them. The same should be true for privacy, but it isn't. For example, following the lengthy investigation of Facebook in 2008 and 2009, the Privacy Commissioner found that Facebook needed more privacy safeguards. Responding with a complete overhaul of its so-called privacy architecture, Facebook offered new settings for its nearly 500 million users. Although this was deemed a privacy U-turn by the major media at the time the net effect of this uh, of these new settings was ironically a massive and unprecedented information grab by Facebook which I'm happy to explain more in the question period. In a rather subtle and ingenious move, Facebook very politely gave our privacy commissioner the new settings that she wanted. But when Facebook gaveth, it also swiftly took it away, choosing to create privacy default settings that collect more information than ever before. Facebook knew perfectly well that 80 to 92 percent of its users would never change those defaults. Behavioral economics made it very clear, like a bad sugar habit, that Facebook could get away with nudging us further and further towards poor information consumption habits. Currently, the privacy commissioner is powerless to do anything about this. Without changes to our law, Canadian legislators are allowing social media sites to build vehicles that uh, default to go rather than stop. Zuckerberg knows how unsafe this is. This is why he's rejigged his own privacy settings. He knows that Facebook's defaults are dangerous. So the question is, why isn't what is good enough for the geese good uh, good also for the gangster? The devil is in the defaults. We need to fix this through legislation that contemplates settings with privacy as the default. So while I agree with Professor Geist that Twitter should be commended for Do Not Track, that Google should be commended for its privacy dashboard, I would take this all one step further. We need legislation that would make some of these amazing features on our online experience non-optional. They should be factory-built and installed with privacy as their default. I will make uh, my second submission much more succinctly since it's similar to the testimony I offered at the PIPEDA review a few years ago. The biggest threat to privacy is not social networks, not surveillance cameras, not wireless mobile, nor databases, nor GPS tracking devices, etc., etc. The biggest threat to privacy is the standard form contract. Under our current law, almost every... Uh, All of privacy safeguards that are built into our privacy legislation can easily be circumvented by anyone who provides goods or services by way of a standard form agreement. By requiring users to click I agree to their terms on a take it or leave it basis, companies can use contract law to sidestep privacy obligations. In short, this is based on a mistaken approach to the issue of consent. In my written submission, which I will provide to this committee, I offer a detailed legislative reforms that would help prevent companies from doing an end run around the protection set out in privacy legislation. It's crucially important. Thank you for your consideration in these matters. I hope during the question period, committee members will give me the opportunity to expand on my three main recommendations. One, mandatory minimums for privacy transparency. Two, mandatory privacy default settings. And three, mechanisms that prevent contracting out of privacy through standard form agreements. Thank you.
0: Ian appeared many times before House of Commons committees and was always willing to speak truth to power. That may never have been more evident than in 2017, when he again appeared before the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics, this time as part of its Privacy Law Review. He closed with some uncomfortable but essential points on going beyond just talking about reform and on the gender composition of the committee itself.
1: Mama raised me among other things. Uh, She taught me uh, that you don't accept a dinner invitation and then complain to your hosts about what is being served. Mama's gentle wisdom notwithstanding, I'd like to conclude my remarks with two uncomfortable observations. First, as I appear before you today, I think it's fair to say that my sense of deja vu is not unwarranted. With the exception of a few new points like my submission in favour of a duty to explain, much of what I have said, indeed much of what everyone who has appeared before you has been said has all been said before. Although many honourable members of this committee are new to these issues, those who've done their homework will surely know that we've already done this dance in hearings around Bill S-4, C-13, the Privacy Act, the Privacy and Social Media hearings and of course the PIPEDA review of 2006. And yet we see very little in the way of substantive legislative change. Although ongoing study is important, I say with respect that you are not Zamboni drivers. The time has come to stop circling around the same ice. The time has come to make some important legislative changes. Second, as I prepare for the question period, I look around the table and pretty much all I see is men. Inexplicably, your, community, your committee itself is composed entirely of men. Yes, I realize that you've called upon a number of women to testify during the course of these proceedings. This, of course, makes sense. After all, a significant majority of privacy professionals are women. Indeed, I think it's fair to say that the global thought leadership in the field of privacy is by majority result of contributions to women. So I find it astonishing and unjustifiable that you have no women on this committee, a decision to me as incomprehensible as many of those made by algorithms. And so I could feel compelled to conclude my remarks by making this observation a part of the the public record. Thank you for your careful attention, and I look forward to questions.
0: One of Ian's most passionate policy issues was his fight supporting a global ban on lethal autonomous weapons. The issue brought him to the United Nations for an address to Member States, and he succeeded in convincing some of the world's greatest computer scientists to join him at the policy table. His appearance on Canada AM in 2015 helped propel the issue onto the political agenda.
2: Some of the world's leading minds, including Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, have written an open letter urging a ban on fully autonomous weapons. These would remove human beings from the control of armed drones and robots. They are not reality yet. But the group says it's only a matter of years before that technology is feasible. Ian Kerr signed that open letter. He is the Canada Research Chair in Ethics, Law and Technology. He joins us from Ottawa. Good morning and thanks for being on the show. Good morning. Well, just so we understand what we're talking about in terms of fully autonomous, we have semi-autonomous that exist today. Tell me, you know, how that's, what's the step up, what they are in terms of fully autonomous.
1: Sure. Well, the, the step up is that the semi-autonomous weapons which we currently have still have a human being who plays a role in the decision around targeting and making selections to kill. When we move to a fully autonomous weapon, we're taking the human being out of the kill decision loop.
2: So it's actually the, the robot itself that is going to make that That's decision. That's
1: right. In other words, you set the, the robot loose and the robot makes its own Targeting and kill decisions and carries everything forward.
2: So, you know, obviously that's frightening for a lot of people I know there's been arguments for and against tell me why you signed this letter
1: I signed the letter because I think that the decision to delegate the kill decision to a robot crosses a fundamental moral line Uh, All of a sudden we move from a world where human beings are the ones who are carrying out these tasks And we now delegate them to machines in a way that really undermines our humanity.
2: So tell me about some of the others that are involved in this. You know, representatives, for example, from um, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, those kinds of people that are speaking out, and what ultimately you would like to see and what you're pushing for in the letter.
1: Sure. Well, the letter pushes for a ban on offensive autonomous weapons. In other words, weapons which go out to take offensive action uh, in, in military cases. And it's been signed by, as you mentioned in your report, a number of famous scientists uh, and entrepreneurs, but also a number of, of important NGOs. In Canada, we have a group called Mines Action Canada, which has been very active uh, in, in prohibiting landmines. And we have groups like the Human Rights Watch, uh, who is spearheading the campaign to stop killer robots, as well as a number of academics and interested citizens.
2: You know, on the one hand, if if these kinds of weapons were only in the hands of, you know, the military, that would be one thing. Is there also a concern that these weapons could fall into the wrong hands or, or be on the black market?
1: Oh, absolutely those concerns, but you could take it a step further than that. The difference between these technologies and for example the nuclear technologies which preceded them is nuclear technologies are very difficult to develop and require rare raw materials to use here once the basic technologies are developed you can have a fourteen year old kid in a garage somewhere uh, who's able to program basic bits of code and use these things
2: so how feasible is an international ban do you think
1: well an international ban would be very difficult for the very reasons i just mentioned in other words When we're talking about a ban on nuclear weapons, it's a little bit easier and still difficult and challenging to go through verification procedures to make sure that people are complying with the ban. Here this would certainly be more difficult, and I think every single member who signed the letter recognizes this. That's not the issue. The important thing is that when we think about a ban or a prohibition of this sort, we make those decisions based on moral grounds, not on grounds of efficacy. So even though it is possible for others to um, disobey the ban, uh, we decide that we just don't want to go down this road. We have to set limits uh, in a way that Einstein learned a little bit too late when he started his work with the uh, Committee for Emergency Committee for Atomic Scientists.
2: Yeah, wow. An interesting analogy. Thank you so much, Ian Kerr, for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Choosing a single public talk or lecture that encapsulates Ian's passion, insights and skills as a communicator is an impossible task, so don't limit yourself just to the one that I've included on this podcast. I've chosen a short talk that Ian gave on AI, robots and health at the University of Montreal in 2016. In just over 17 minutes, the talk showcases Ian's ability to weave together so many different issues and concepts. But the event also highlights the friendships and community around Ian. I was a speaker at the same event, and we got to spend the day taking the train together back and forth between Ottawa and Montreal. The event itself was organized by Vincent Trey, who was with us at the University of Ottawa when we began to build the Law and Technology program. And the event itself was run by Florian Martin-Beriteau, at the time a doctoral student at the University of Montreal and now a colleague who is the director of the Center for Law, Technology and Society. Other speakers that day included Catherine Régis and Eloise Grattan, who were both close friends of Ian's. This field features a close community, and Ian was so often at its heart.
1: I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, um, uh, robots in the context of this conference, which is, of course, in two words. I'll say more than two words, but the two words we're supposed to focus on uh, for this panel are the word cyber, uh, which of course uh, refers to the characteristic and culture of computers, information, technology, and virtual reality, as well as health, um, the state of being uh, free uh, of illness or injury. And I could think of no better way to combine these two words, cyber health, uh, than to show you one of the technologies that some of my uh, forthcoming research is on. I don't think the sound is plugged in, so it's important for you to hear the Google banjo in the background. We're getting to a point uh, in in robotics now where we're about to see we're on the precipice of some fairly significant changes in the health sector. Um, what you're watching here, I think, is quite remarkable. As I can tell by how captivated you are at watching the screen rather than looking at me, which is good because that's that was part of my plan here. But in thinking about this, um, what you're watching here is a is a robotic um, a device that's called the Da Vinci, and the Da Vinci is still a, um, a a machine which really, I think, reflects our early notions of cyber, which is this idea that the technology mediates the transactions that people do, and in this case, the transaction that a surgeon would do as they're uh, um, performing a surgery. But I think it's also sort of important to uh, think about this in terms of where we're heading. And where we're heading is to a world where these semi-autonomous machine systems, which are still run with the human being in the loop, um, you can see they can operate in, in, in small quarters, um, are more and more becoming um, automated. And we're getting to the point where um, we're going to remove the human being from the loop. We're not there yet. This is what the da Vinci looks like. Uh, and as I say, it's a good example of cyber in the context of health. And one of the things that's amazing is the extent to which the technology is, is there now. Uh, we're getting cyber right from a technological perspective. And we certainly had better as we enter theatres of this sort, the surgery theatre. And so what I want to think about is that even if we do get the cyber right, in other words, the technology is there, as we move forward with AI and robotics, um, we have to think really carefully about law and policy um, because of some of the special characteristics that AI and robotics bring forward. So I'm going to talk uh, in my brief time about three different characteristics. First, I'm going to talk about autonomy, Uh, In other words, in this case, the machines becoming more and more autonomous and not requiring human intervention or oversight. Secondly, I'm going to talk about the characteristic of emergence, the idea that AIs in particular, but robots that are driven by AI, um, are at a point where some of their behaviors and activities are ones which we don't normally expect. Some of their behavior is unpredictable. And third, I want to talk a little bit about where we're heading with some robots, Um, which is in, in terms of giving them the characteristic of sociality. The idea that these machines are becoming social. The purpose is to create relationships between the machines and people. And there's some very interesting implications that law and policy will have to contemplate in thinking these through. So let's start with the first one, with autonomy. The idea here is that we have a system which involves a doctor... Um, as really the driver of the system. And the system intermediates the surgery, allows it to be much more precise. But at the same time, um, where we're heading more and more is to an era where we're going to take that surgeon out of, out of the picture, right? And this is not just about the robots making their own sandwiches. Um, this is about uh, a set of arguments that we're going to see that says by taking the human out of the loop, what we'll ultimately be doing is moving towards more safe systems, more efficient systems, uh, ones which are more profitable and have a better bottom line. We've seen that in the airline industry already. We all know that the pilot is there to tell you what the weather is like in the next city and maybe to be around in case there's a landing that takes place. Uh, We're about to see it in the next five or ten years with driverless vehicles as we let go of the wheel uh, and allow more and more autonomy to the cars that drive us around. It's interesting to think about whether we're going to get there uh, with surgery. Um, There's no reason to think that those technologies uh, couldn't provide the same level of precision and specificity, um, but it might take a kind of different leap of faith when you're sitting underneath this machine uh, than when you're sitting behind the vehicle, but maybe not. We'll see. In any event, I think one of the important things to recognize is as we have more and more machine autonomy, we have less and less human control that's a choice that we're going to make. And I think, as as I've said already, we're going to see that sooner and sooner with driverless vehicles. So should those vehicles have an override capability, um, as the legislation that Canada is currently contemplating, thinking about drafting, um, would suggest? Um, And how do we make the leap um, from situations where we give the machine more autonomy to letting go of some of that kind of control? One aspect of this that's related to the idea of relinquishing human control, of course, is the second characteristic that I want to talk about, and that is this characteristic of emergence. The notion of emergence um, recognizes that as we program machines to be more autonomous, the kind of algorithms that drive that autonomy are of a sort that would make it so that the machine behaves unpredictably. Okay? It has emergent characteristics, um, that we only come to learn about as we, as we experience the machine. In other words, the machine is unpredictable by its design. Unpredictability is a feature, not a bug. Okay? We saw that this week, for those of you who are nerds in the audience, and I'm looking at a few of them as we speak, as I put this slide up. For those of you who have been following Deep Mind's, one of the companies that Google acquired in the last couple of years uh, as a major AI acquisition um, has been uh, in the headlines a lot for having just defeated the grandmaster at the game of Go. Every 10 years or so, we have human being champions taking on uh, machine systems at different games. Go was thought to be sort of the last um, possibility where the humans um, would have the advantage because Go is an in- incredibly complex game in a way that requires human intuition um, and not just sort of linear... Uh, computational ability. So whereas up until now, the kinds of techniques that AI has been using rely on brute force and processing capability, now we start to see that with DeepMinds, the AI is actually capable of making intuitive moves. And in and, and game two of this match, which just occurred a couple of days ago, um, AlphaGo, um, DeepMinds' uh, uh, Go playing uh, AI, um, made a move which was described um, as one which no human being would make, it was. It's referred to as move 37. If you want to Google it later and see it, it was described as a rare and intriguing shoulder hit. And at first, um, the the people of Deep Minds thought that a mistake was happening. But later, as it was described by one of the commentators, um, who's who's a, a leading figure in this game, said, um, "It's not a human move. I've never seen a human play this move." He says, "So beautiful." a word he kept repeating, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And so one of the things we start to see here is that there is this, um, um, <coughs> this is something that the, the, the people from Deep Blue were not predicting. First of fo- all, Deep Minds, sorry. Deep Minds was not predicting uh, that this machine would win and defeat the human, and they were cer- not, certainly not predicting some of these moves along the way. And it's that unpredictability, the emergence, that I think becomes very interesting as we allow these algorithms to do things like drive cars for us. So um, just in thinking about that that move in particular, we've seen another instance in the last couple of years. Some of you will recognize this as IBM's Watson, which also defeated the human uh, champions in the game of Jeopardy, a game that requires natural language ability and relies on puns and plays on words. And machine systems are now capable of using natural language. But during that match, there was one point at which the clue that was given uh, was about a U.S. airport, and IBM's Watson chimed in and said, what is Toronto? And this emergent behavior, which was unexpected, just like the Go move that I just described, was one that took the programmers days and weeks afterwards to try to reconstruct what actually was going on there. This property of emergence is, I think, particularly important as we start to see headlines like this one two years ago. IBM's Watson is better at diagnosing cancer than human doctors. So we start to think about this, and we start to think, what happens when that machine system develops a far superior track record for predicting and diagnosing cancer? There are evidence-based reasons to follow what IBM's Watson is saying with regard to a medical diagnosis. So when we think about this, if we imagine looking forward at this, we can only imagine there still being a human in the loop. We're not going to relinquish all control to the machine systems. So there's going to be some doctor, um, the physician with primary responsibility for the for, for the file in question. And they're going to consult Watson as a kind of instrument or machine in the doctor's toolkit. But there are going to come times where there's going to be human-robot disagreement, namely where Watson says to do one thing and the doctor said, thinks in their heart they should be doing something else. On the, at the same time, Watson will have proven this incredible track record that no human being is able to match. And we'll get to the point where the doctor in charge really faces what I think of as an existential dilemma. Right? This is Abraham on the mountain hearing the voice and not knowing what to do in a kind of way. And so in thinking about where we're heading in terms of relinquishing control in the face of emergent technology, uh, it raises really interesting legal questions around responsibility. Uh, I'm not going to get in deep into the legal questions because we're trying to keep this punchy and short, um, but I will suggest as some of my writing, if anyone's interested in looking at it, that this leads to a paradox of the sort that Isaac Asimov might have imagined. And it goes like this. The normative pull Um, that would lead to the decision to delegate to the intelligent machine, namely evidence-based reasoning, um, will generate a system where we now have no obvious evidentiary rationale for explaining the outcome that was generated by the intelligent machine. And the idea here is that the machines themselves, as they become emergent, as they engage in machine learning, generate outcomes that their programmers cannot explain. So we no longer have a scientific rationale um, that supports or justifies the algorithm. The algorithm is justified only on the basis of its success. But its success, of course, is no longer a causal or scientific story that can be empirically tested. It's only one that can be sort of demonstrated to have shown a good run of luck up until now. And I think that that's going to generate some real serious interest uh, in terms of thinking about how do we assess liability? How do we think about responsibility when things go wrong? And in hindsight, uh, we see that things are 2020, uh, but really in assessing these things from a policy perspective, it's deeper than that. I'd like to say some more about that, and perhaps there'll be a time in the, in the question period if anybody's interested. But I want to save just a couple of minutes as I close here by talking about the last emergent quality, uh, the last quality of robotics, and that is sociality. What we're seeing more and more is that robots and artificial intelligence systems are being designed in a way to exploit uh, um, a human tendency, which is the tendency of anthropomorphism. We tend to treat machines and other inanimate objects sometimes as though they have human qualities. We name them that way. We sometimes talk to them that way. And this is something that has been understood for a long period of time. What's different and what's happening now is that tendency towards anthropomorphism is now being instantiated in a set of of empirical sciences, uh, one field known as affective computing, where the idea is that we take this tendency and we figure out how to design so that people will be more anthropomorphic to the machine. (laughs) And it makes a lot of sense from the perspective of of, of, u- for, of the user, right? If we want to make these things usable, we make the machine systems in a way that people connect with them and people trust them. And so I thought I'd show you one uh, example of a robot that's about to hit the market this year, a robot by the name of um, Pepper, and one which Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson um, had the opportunity to meet recently at the Clinton uh, Global uh, Initiative. So...
3: I'm interested in working in healthcare and helping the elderly. My body language and understanding of basic emotions allow me to naturally communicate with people. And I also like to think I'm pretty charming. <laughs> when I connect to the cloud, I have the ability to pull endless information from the internet. Want to know the symptoms of the chicken pox? <gasps> and-
2: It's great. Pepper, give me some more examples of how you can help.
3: I can use my internet connection to make family, friends, or doctors feel closer. I can play silly games to test your memory, eyesight, or even your flexibility, as well as entertaining you during shots or exams. I have a great memory for when you should take your pills or when your kids are coming to visit. The Mm. possibilities are really endless. I see,
2: I see.
1: Kind of an awkward set of interactions there, but I think the thing to understand here is unlike a lot of these kinds of demonstrations, uh, Pepper's not scripted there. That is not a script that was programmed in. That is emergent discussion, uh, including the mistake of when Pepper found the wrong uh, item on the Internet and, and, and acted genuinely surprised afterwards um, when, when that was corrected. So as we start to see what's going on here, I think it's useful to think of what's the, the, the the robotics company... Um, Aldebaran Robotics is doing here, right? They're taking the world's most famous astrophysicist, branding that sort of understanding, deep, big mind in science, and branding that around the uh, the Clinton Global Initiative uh, as a way of basically saying we should, we can trust these robots to do elder care. And as we start to think about these things, I think what we'll see and what we have to pay attention to is the idea that The more that we trust machine systems, the more we'll be willing to delegate various tasks that were used to fall exclusively within the human domain, uh, important human tasks and decision making. And so one of the things that I'm doing in my research uh, on on health and elderly care that I'm not going to spend any more time on except in the question period is this question about what is anthropomorphic design, what should its limits be, and what should the role of law be? So in thinking about this, I've, I've titled my piece Robots and Their Human Counterparts, and I guess one of the things I want to think about is this duality of the word counterpart. A counterpart can be somebody's colleague, it can be somebody's opposite, but a counterpart is also something uh, which ultimately becomes insignificant And because it's mass produced and and we don't even think about all the counterparts um, that make up the world around us. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about when I think about cyber health. And I'm happy to turn the floor over to our next speaker. Thank you very much.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback... Write to LawBytes at P.O.Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBytesPod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBytes podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.